from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just finished up recording this week's show. We're bringing you the big stories and even bigger conversations, including LGBTQ plus focused digital bank Daylight announces a $15 million Series A funding round. We heard from Billy Simmons, the chief operating officer, about how Daylight is using the funding to try and build products that are better suited to the needs of queer people. The FCA has warned trading firms over dangerous gamification. And we heard from Charlie Conchi, a reporter at City AM, about how the FCA is getting concerned, given the cost of the living crisis, that investment firms are encouraging customers to place bets that they probably shouldn't be. And we answer questions from the FinTech Insider mailbag, including what's FinTech going to look like in 2070? We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't touch that dial. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as non-fungible tokens, buy now, pay later, the cost of living, ESG, circular economies, embedded finance, and inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome to episode 684 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Gavin, who is a strategy lead at 11FS. How are you doing, Amy? What's been keeping you busy lately? Um, doing very well, thank you. Um, excited to be co-hosting Fintech Insider together, having not done it together before. Um, in terms of what's been keeping me busy lately, I'm working on a project at the moment uh, with an incumbent European bank to improve their digital services and experiences, both for retail and for small business customers. Um, so in practice, this is about increasing customer engagement, deepening relationships, and ultimately acquiring new customers as well. They're keen to broaden the base um, of their customers to include more younger customers, which we know is is a um, significant focus for a lot of incumbent banks right now. Really interesting challenge. It's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Billy Simmons, co-founder and COO of Daylight. Welcome, Billy. Thank you so much for being here and interrupting your Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to you and indeed to all of our listeners in America. Can you give our new listeners an introduction to you and to Daylight, please? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. As a, as a British person, it's always kind of an odd experience uh, celebrating this holiday here. But um I'm Billy, as, as you said, I'm the co-founder and COO of Daylight. We're a digital banking platform designed for the LGBTQ community. Um, we enable our members to live their best lives through tailored advice, financial products, and utilizing the power of our community to support one another financially and emotionally. Fantastic. 
And we have a FinTech Insider debut for Charlie Conchi, reporter at City AM. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Can you give our audience an introduction to you and your news beat at City AM, please? Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, my title is investment reporter at City AM. Uh, City AM is a daily business newspaper, um, free to pick up around London. We have obviously a, an online operation as well. In terms of my beat, I lead on all our kind of fintech coverage. I do a lot of fintech policy and regulation, I think you could say, and then sort of spreads into venture capital. Um, I do a bit of our private equity coverage as well and tend to, I suppose, broadly cover the whole remit of investment as well. Fantastic. Welcome. All right. Well, with that, let's get into the news. So our first story came from TechCrunch, and it is that Daylight has raised cash to launch subscription plan for family planning. LGBTQ plus focused banking platform Daylight has announced a $15 million Series A round led by Anthemis Group with participation from CMFG Ventures, Kapoor Capital, City Ventures and Gangels. US-based Daylight says the new capital will be used to build the financial products and services to help queer people live their best lives. The first product will be a subscription plan called Daylight Grow, designed to help prospective queer families with financial and family planning. Daylight Grow subscribers will receive a personalized family creation plan covering financial, legal, and logistical milestones tailored to their state and needs. Subscribers of the platform will also get a family planning concierge to provide financial advice and logistical support. Billy, fantastic to have you here to discuss this. Thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on the funding round. Super exciting news. Um, why was this the right time to, to raise the Series A round? Um, you've, you've been operating for a couple of years. What? Why now? Uh, you know, ultimately, startups raise cash when they need it to develop new product lines or to scale. And for us, you know, with the market shifting, we knew we had to make some quick and decisive action uh, towards a stronger revenue position. So we've used this money uh, to develop the grow product um, and as well to see us through hopefully some of these more turbulent times uh, and start to acquire customers to put us in a stronger revenue position. How have those conversations gone with with the investors? Did um, you, know, you talked about a little bit of urgency there? Uh, you know, did you were you hitting any sort of barriers? How, how were those conversations? You know. Like my hot take is, you know, we're we're mon minority founders, um, so we're kind of used to having to go this extra mile. Um, we're asked to sell the vision, but then also back it up with data and with mm -hmm. traction already. Um, and so, you know, yes, it is a it is a harder fundraising um, environment, but I, you know, I think uh, the impetus has always been on startups to prove that they. They know what they're doing. Um, they know how to use capital effectively to create a return for investors. Um, for us in particular, you know, I think uh, almost all of our investors that invested in the seed round followed on um, in the Series A, particularly Anthemis, who were in our seed and then led our Series A. So we've developed this this really long uh, relationship with Anthemis. I also used to work at Anthemis uh, way back when in the early days of my career. So, you know. Uh, it's it's really been like a, a journey um, alongside our investors, um, and I think that's that's been really helpful for for us being able to sell our vision and uh, build the next thing. Yeah, I can imagine that helps having a, having a really strong relationship and having a sort of understanding of 
of how they work and, and, and what they're looking for. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how Daylight Grow will work in practice? I actually got a bit confused as I was reading out the fact it was tailored to people's state and needs. And I was thinking it meant uh, you know, Minnesota or Wisconsin, but I assume actually you don't mean that, or maybe you do. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it's going to work in practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we I, I, we do mean geographical state. Um, and part of the reason for this is um, in the US, your legal status as a queer person differs based on which state you live in. Uh, and so in order to have a child, um, frankly, in order to exist as an LGBTQ person in the US means having an acute knowledge of the legal situation in the state that you live in. Um, when you add children into the mix, um, that gets significantly more complex. And so our goal is to really take the friction out of that process and give our members the tools and the information that they need. Um, so, you know, this is a, this is a product separate to the bank account product that we have launched. Um, they're, they're, they're linked and they're connected, but they are, you can sign up for grow separately to the bank account. Uh, you're taken through an onboarding process. So we take in things like what ingredients you have, things like sperm or eggs, your financial situation, and then contextual information like uh, what state you live in, um, what legal documents you might have already prepared. And then we essentially create a custom plan um, that walks them through the best method for family building, um, as well as those logistical and legal considerations. And then because it's a very emotional experience, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, people's people's futures, people's hopes and dreams. Um, there's even a grief element, right? Like uh, IVF is often not successful the first time that you try it. Um, so we have a team of concierges ready to help support you, unblock you, um, answer questions. We've got specialist knowledge, um, people that have worked in IVF clinics, that have worked in adoption centers. So bring a lot of that um, domain specific expertise. Um, and then at the core of this, we're a fintech product, right? So uh, how to afford it is the, is one of the biggest barriers. So for an LGBT couple, it costs on average $55,000 more than a non-LGBT couple. Um, it's already very expensive in the US to have a kid, um, even if you're doing it through quote unquote natural means. Um, and so that additional cost is often a completely immovable barrier for a lot of LGBT people. Um, and so helping our community figure out how they might navigate that barrier is going to be really, really important. Um, so this is the moment where you can connect your daylight bank account to get a more accurate picture of your finances, but also unlock things like loans and grant products. Um, because the reality is, is that for most uh, people, uh, saving up $55,000 or more, you know, surrogacy can be up to $300,000. Um, that's really hard to just save up for. So part of this challenge is what combination of financial products can we help you use in order to have the family that you deserve? I'm really tempted to ask you a whole ton of further questions about you know, why there are all these cost differentials. I'm guessing that if you've got a womb, it's maybe slightly easier than if you haven't and so on. But I want to bring the others into the conversation. So um, I'm loving how your, your, your vision here is much more than just financial services. Financial services are really just a means to an end. And I absolutely love that. Amy, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, do you think community-focused sort of banks and banking propositions like Daylight are going to succeed in the long term? What's your what's your take on this? Yeah, I think the whole community aspect 
could be a real differentiator in helping something to succeed in the long term because in building that sustainable community that people actually feel part of, then they're going to want to commit to that financial brand and um, go on to like use use them into the long term. So I think I think that is a really interesting element of it. I also I'm I'm really interested in the opportunity that you've got here to dig super deep into the needs of a very um, specific customer segment, and that actually um, if you're not trying to serve everybody with this, or if you're being very explicit about which um, segment you're going after, then it gives you a license to offer quite a select service offering, but one that really plays to the needs of the customer that you have in mind. Um, so yeah, I'll be really interested to see how um, you succeed with that and, and where that goes and then how you can branch out from maybe one certain type of financial planning product and the, the various products that can then be added um, and, and will branch off of that. I want to build on that. How, how have you thought about sort of building inclusion into the design of your your product, Billy? Because presumably, um, you're not just offering standard products. Have you? How have you sort of changed them at all to make them slightly more inclusive? Um, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it, it comes from um, from deeply understanding the lived experiences of our members. Um, it comes from having members of our community building the products and designing these products. Um, I'm a trans woman, and so I've firsthand experienced what it's like to have a bank account that doesn't have my chosen name on the on the account and the friction that that um, creates, the danger, frankly, that that creates. And so, you know, we, we launched in, in 2020 with, uh, at the time it was a prepaid card, um, we launched in 2021 with a debit card, but both times, you know, one of the core features was the ability to have whatever name you wanted on your card. Um, that is a, a, you know, a feature that for other products, it's not immediately clear why that would be necessary or why that would be such an important product. But because we understand our community so deeply, we're able to know this is something that is needed. Um, we know how to build it in the right way. There's been a couple of other attempts out in the market, and I'm pretty sure on at least one 11FS podcast, I've uh, spoken uh, derisively about uh, other other attempts at creating this inclusive product. Um, so you can go listen to those podcasts. I won't do it again. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's uh, having the customer in the forefront of your mind and considering the entire end-to-end -end experience is really important. Uh, using the right language is really important. I think that's one of the main ways that customers get alienated. You know, the, a great example for Grow is um, calling calling our things ingredients, you know, we, we we sort of wrestled with this idea mm. of, okay, well, uh, not all women have uteruses, um, particularly for our target market. There are plenty of trans men or non-binary people who do have uteruses. And so you have to find language to abstract away some of this stuff because it's really unpleasant to be confronted with that when you're going on this family building journey. And so I think having constant conversations with your community and making sure that you're bringing them along every step of the way um, is really how you build these products. I love that. Billy, I was, um, if I can just jump in there, I was interested in, I suppose you touched on it, um, how, I suppose, specific some of the challenges facing your members are. And outside of what Daylight's doing to address them, are you kind of encouraged in the way that the industry is addressing those issues? Do you think there are enough other firms sort of developing specific products and really tailoring, tailoring their services to that community like they should be? 
Uh, I think they can always be doing more. You know, we we launched a campaign last year called Call Me By My Name that was asking incumbent banks to adopt the same standards for chosen name that we have adopted. Um, that didn't, you know, frankly, that wasn't super successful. Um, there was a lot of interest from incumbent banks and certainly a lot of conversations started, um, but those have ultimately not really gone anywhere and nothing has really been built. And so, you know, I, I'm a I'm a naturally optimistic person, so I love to I love to have a positive vision of the future. But um, I think, in some ways, the U.S. is is taking steps in the wrong direction towards inclusivity, particularly for the LGBTQ community. And I'm not sure I can see that necessarily expanding to incumbent banking. Okay, well, we're going to need to wrap up on this question. But Billy, I'm going to take that as a signal that we're going to see daylight moving into other markets in time, and that you'll be bringing this proposition to to, uh, to more people around the world. So fantastic news again. Congratulations. Um, for listeners interested in more on how do we make financial services more LGBTQ inclusive, please go and listen to Fintech Insider Insights episode 639, where we had guests from the Queer Money podcast, Emerald Life and Euphoria, talking about exactly the kind of issues that um, Billy's just been talking through. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that the Financial Conduct Authority has warned trading firms over dangerous gamification. This came from City AM and was written by Charlie in which he reported that the UK's financial watchdog has fired a warning shot at trading apps over the so-called gamification of betting on the financial markets. The warning comes amid fears that unsophisticated investors are being lured into bets against their own best interests. In a statement, the Financial Conduct Authority warned trading app operators to review design features, including sending frequent notifications with the latest market news and providing investors with in-app points, badges and celebratory messages. The warnings come after fears on both sides of the Atlantic that retail investors are being prompted into speculative bets without understanding the ramifications. To look at this decision from an inclusive design perspective, we asked 11FS's product director, Charlotte Faraday, to give us her take on this news. The FCA has done some research into the use of gamification by trading apps and is concerned about the increased use of game mechanics to drive engagement. The study found that badges and notification nudges encourage participants to take on more risk and that this is way stronger for inexperienced traders with low financial literacy. From an inclusive design perspective, this is worrying as it's actively increasing customer vulnerability. Some other specific mechanics they called out were things like showing leaderboards, time pressured notifications and using flashing colours to create a sense of urgency. All these are patterns that are likely to cause or intensify anxiety and encourage people with impulse control issues to make decisions that aren't in their best interests. It's not just an issue for these people, it's an issue for many of the users who are getting into trading without a good enough understanding of the risks involved. Another pattern the study mentions is that these apps are setting high default suggested trade amounts, which people rarely change, and which encourage people to invest more than they would if the defaults were lower. To address this, I'd love to see more financial education and positive friction to help customers understand the implications of their actions adding additional review steps that make the implications really clear, and building in insights like you get in apps like Finimize would be helpful. At the end of the day, the more these trading apps can increase financial literacy and long-term success of their users, the more sustainable their growth will be. 
Charlie, you you cover this uh, you cover this story for City AM. What, what did you think of this? Did you is was the FCA pointing this at particular firms? What was your what was your reaction to this? I think the timing is perhaps the most interesting thing because in some ways it feels like a real retreading of the debate that we were having two years ago when firms like Robin Hood were front and centre during the pandemic. Um, there were real concerns over things like I think we touched on it there confetti being sprinkled down when trades were placed. Um, I think it was a time when obviously retail investors had probably, or certain demographic, I should say, had a bit more money in their pocket. They had more time on their hands. Markets were wild and there was this kind of temptation to use that extra cash um, on the markets. Um, I think now if we come back to where the SDA is today, there's a real awareness that we're again going through a volatile time in the markets and also a, a very sort of tricky time for consumers. And if you look at this in the kind of wider context of, of what the FCA is doing at the moment, there's been a real push on, I think just in the last week, we saw warnings against um, credit checking firms to kind of ramp up their the credit checks they're performing. We saw warnings against mortgage lenders a couple of weeks ago, the chair of the FCA said to step up. Um, so there's uh, sort of warnings against buy now, pay later firms as well, which are actually following on from a warning early in the air, turning into action. So there's this real movement from the FCA where I think it's aware that consumers are in a, a difficult place at the moment. And it is kind of firing off these warning shots in lots of different directions to make sure that people are keeping in line and consumers are being safeguarded. Did you get a sense that this was being fired at a particular firm or, or, or group of firms? Or do you think this is really just a warning for the industry as a whole, just cool it? Um. One of the very interesting kind of specific instances that the SA pulled out actually was um, push notifications with market news. And I think what was interesting about that one is the fact that that isn't a particularly specific thing to any one platform. I think if you look at even some of the more you know, established players, a lot of them have their own kind of market analysis, people like Hargreaves, Lansdowne, AJ Bell. There is that kind of digest. And I was was kind of intrigued by that mm. inclusion. There was obviously the the other points we've touched on as well. There was confetti sprinkling down. There were leaderboards as well, which um, you can see people would be maybe tempted into trading against um, their own kind of, you know, against their own gain there. They'd be trading for the wrong reasons, competition reasons. Um so it was it was slightly broad brush and capsule at the stage. And I think the nature of the warning, as we've seen across the industries, is very much to probably um, you know keep firms in line across the board rather than target any any few. That said, I'm going to contradict myself slightly. <laughs> there were there were there were kind of customers from four specific firms that were surveyed. They were unnamed by the FCA, but I think the nature of the warning was broad enough for every firm to feel like they do have to probably fall in line slightly. Amy, there'll, there'll be some people listening to this, um, you know, product designers and business leaders and so on, who are thinking, well, you know, wh- what's wrong about making a, an app engaging? Surely game mechanics are a good thing. You know, I've, I've encouraged um, firms to use game mechanics in the past. So where's, where's the line between game mechanics working in a good way for, for customers and game mechanics potentially being harmful to them? Yeah, well, in, in reading this story, um, it made me think that there's a lot of overlap here with um, benchmarking projects that we do at 11FS, whereby we take um, an app, we look at it in detail, all of the different features, and compare that against competitors and then make recommendations on best practice and areas that they could improve. And actually, we would often make recommendations that gamification is a positive thing or 
make, or rewarding people for good savings behavior, for example, um, and offering people um, the ability to turn on all sorts of different notifications and tailoring them to their needs, low balance notifications, notifications when there's a scheduled payment. This is often seen as positive um, or good good practice within financial products. But actually here, it's about there being too much interaction from the app and about the fact that rewarding people for good financial behavior is not the same as rewarding people for um, good trading behavior or or um, putting people on a leaderboard. So yeah, I think there's an interesting question here and it kind of flips on its head um, a lot of the best practice advice that we would give, for example, for a savings product. Very interesting. Billy, have you have you been thinking about sort of game mechanics at, at daylight? Do you use sort of game mechanics at all in, in how you uh, sort of educate your customers or, or, or persuade them to try and do things? Yeah, we do. We, we actually have a gamification PM on the team. Um, and part of this is about part of the reason for bringing that person on the team um, was to build good habits, right, as Amy was saying. And I think gamification can be a really powerful tool. Uh, when it's used for the right kinds of habits. And I, I actually think that the issue here is misaligned incentives for businesses. Um, I think businesses are being asked to focus on the wrong metrics for success, whether that's throughput, whether that's customer acquisition. And perhaps instead, you know, we should be defining success as return on investment or, uh, you know, lowering the amount of money that's lost through the platform. And maybe by sort of shifting, shifting the focus to safeguarding the customers instead of just blindly putting the customers on the platform and, you know, expecting them to know what's best for them, we should actually be uh, rethinking the way we think about success. But there's a, you know, there's an, there's an inherent tension between kind of capitalism at large and our investors uh, who want to see returns on their investment. Um, and so I think often that's, you know, when, when you see um, apps like Robinhood, um, they are not, they're not thinking about, you know, the customer experience again, they're thinking about, okay, how can we get people to put more trades um, on the platform? Charlie, is, is Billy right? Do you think she's hit the nail on the head there? I think to some degree, there, there is a bit of a disconnect in the way that fintechs internally think about it and the way that regulators naturally think about it and the way that the market at the moment is thinking about it. Um, I think it's probably another contextual point with how the FCA is approaching it at the moment is in how it's looking at things within its consumer duty, which is going to come in next year as well, um, which again is, is kind of even more so pushing the, the consumer up the agenda. So I think there is perhaps a disconnect there and, and some of the mechanics that might be applied internally don't necessarily apply to the market. Um, and perhaps some might say that the FCA is acting out of an abundance of caution when it fires off these kind of warning shots. But I think um, that is probably always going to be a slight source of friction, I imagine. Last quick question to you, um, Charlie, before we wrap this story up. So uh, we've just had this sort of FTX uh, collapse and crypto and so on. Is, is the regulator focusing on the on the right trading issue here? Well, I suppose the you know the, the regulation of crypto is not just a, a UK um, issue, I suppose. And I think what you're seeing is the FCA trying to clip people's wings and kind of bring it in line as much as it can. And at the moment, the, the world of crypto is probably too big a beast for it to quite grapple with. I think you're right in saying that there needs to be some sort of um, 
movement on that. And I think, you know, we, we saw that amendment table to the financial services and markets bill where there is going to be slightly more of an effort made to bring the wider ecosystem into regulation. So I think there are probably desperate attempts to try and address that issue as quickly as they possibly can. But right now they're probably acting at, on what is already within their wheelhouse, so to speak. Thank you. Okay, well, if you're looking for more on how you design for inclusivity, avoiding potentially hostile features, you should definitely check out the 11FS Inclusive Design Report, which is available at 11FS.com. And we're just going to take a quick pause here, and we will be back very shortly. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. New bank swing to profit may signal the demise of growth-at-all-cost strategies for digital banks. This was reported in Insider Intelligence. So Brazil's new bank has posted another quarter of record-breaking revenues in Q3, helping the Brazilian digital bank reverse widening losses to turn a profit. In its third quarter, new bank generated revenues of 1.3 billion US dollars, more than double the 480 million a year before, and up around 13% from Q2. The digital bank posted net profits of $7.8 million, swinging from a $34 million loss a year earlier and a $30 million loss in Q2. The Warren Buffett-backed firm added 5 million customers in Q3, up 46% year-over-year, to reach 70 million customers across Brazil, Mexico and Colombia. To find out more about how Newbank has made a profit in times of economic uncertainty, we reached out to Roberta Prescott, Brazil correspondent for Latin American financial news site, Upana. When it came out for the first time, the purple credit card launched in 2014 was a big hit. With no annual fee and controlled by an easy-to-use smartphone app, Newbank made quite an interest in a market so far controlled by big banks. Overcoming the bureaucracy was a milestone, especially in a market with a huge number of unbanked population. With no bank accounts, they often have no credit history, making it more difficult to access the banking services. Nu saw an opportunity there and broke the market with a very disruptive model, which has been incorporated by traditional players. The Latin American fintech has already managed to turn a profit in the Brazilian operations. Now, the over 70 million customers mark and finally the reach of break-even in the third quarter of 2022 result from the neobank's strategy of lowering entering barriers, along with a low-cost tech platform with low cost of funding and a winning profit margin. The results from the third quarter and the maturity new gained will be useful to deal with the incertitude of microeconomists in a scenario that expects rising the foes while keeping its portfolio profitable. Billy, where does daylight stand on this sort of question of growth versus profitability? I mean, you've just been talking to a bunch of your investors ahead of you know the, the new funding round. Um, how do you get that balance right? And has that changed as the sort of economic outlook has, has shifted over the past few months? 
Yeah, it's absolutely changed over over the course of this year alone, to be honest. Uh, you know, the the previous neobank uh, business model was grow at all costs and raise uh, consistent rounds of funding to continue that growth and figure out profitability down the line. Um, with growth comes profitability for a lot of neobanks, particularly when it's uh, focusing on the interchange business because you need scale in order to, to reach that level. Now, uh, we're being asked to do a lot more with a lot less, um, which is largely focused on creating more revenue uh, with fewer customers. So it's it's certainly changed. Um, I think it's ultimately a good thing for our business. Um, there's, you know, we have to get back to the business fundamentals of what is a product that people will pay for and, uh, you know, what is the value that we're actually creating. So I, you know, I see it as a, as a long-term good for our business and one that is not so uh, contingent on things like uh, interchange, which as we've seen uh, fairly recently has become less of a uh, profit center for neobanks as well. Amy, I mean, Billy's just touched on it, but why is it so hard for digital banks to make a profit? Yeah, I think um, lending is one reason in that a lot of digital banks haven't cracked being able to lend to customers or that's certainly not the product that they would start with. Um, So I think we've seen uh, more mature and advanced digital platforms start to move into that lending space and to offer more credit products. And I think that is maybe where the tipping point comes into being able to have um, a longer term sustainable plan for profitability. Charlie, what's your what's your view on this? Do you think we're going to see um, some of the sort of digital banks struggling as they you know struggle to get to scale? Do you think we're going to see a bit of a shakeout? What what's your sense from from the markets and the people you talk to? I think yeah, the, the point Amy made there is really interesting. Where you know it's not a, a new thing, but the, these neo banks, whether you you know startup banks, they they have realised that the current accounts aren't going to make them profits and suddenly as billy touched on as well there has been this massive shift in sentiment when revenue and growth at all cost isn't the be all and end all and there is this focus on profitability and i think i know you know revenue obviously is not a regulated bank in the uk but i think what they're doing by adding on value-added features they're pushing more and more into the lending market they're rolling out things like insurance there's this real push to diversify as much as possible um which is really interesting i think you know, it's becoming, particularly in the case of Revolut, where we're seeing features added on that you, you wouldn't associate at all with Revolut, like Revolut Homes, for instance. There's this real push towards monetization at all costs. How can we monetize our customers' attention, which I think is the really interesting thing. So it, I think it will be a, a much more, as Amy touched on, much more and kind of faster push into lending products and maybe some more um, left-field products like Airbnb alternatives popping up on banking platforms as well. So Billy talked about scale and, and Charlie, you talked about sort of diversifying the, the product range. But, you know, Amy, if you're, if you, you know, if you're leading a, a, a digital bank, as, as Billy, of course, is, um, <laughs> those are opposite things. You know, one implies you spend more money on marketing, trying to get more customers onto your platform. The other one says you spend more money sort of developing new products. Um, I'm, not sure, I'm, sure, I'm not sure there's a right answer, but do you think firms need to lean one way or the other, you know, go after more customers, go after more products or does it sort of depend on your market context? The building new products one is difficult because it's a situation where, I mean, Charlie touched on the sort of extended banking idea and it's like how far can you go within that platform to offer products that are relevant for the customers that you're trying to target but that they 
that are not so far outside of the brand that they wouldn't go to you for those products. So I think that one is a really difficult one to get right. So therefore has to be balanced with growing your customer base at the same time because it's in growing your number of customers that you end up being able to understand them in greater detail and therefore being able to offer the extended products that are most relevant to them. So maybe it's a in parallel, one after the other type type strategy, but certainly both of those things would would come into it. Are there any lessons we can learn from from, from Newbank, Billy? I'm going to throw it back to you. But um, are there things that you're looking at from Newbank and thinking, you know, we can learn from that? I mean, obviously, you're very different. You you serve a, a much more a targeted market. You're in a different economy. But are there things you look at in Newbank and say, you know, there's there's a couple of lessons for us there? I think their vision. Um, is very inspiring. Um, I think they have come into a market that was very, very underserved um, and have, you know, uh, worked against, you know, with with a lot of forces working against them um, to build something for for a very underserved market. And it's clearly working super well for them. Um, I'm, you know, personally, I'm a little skeptical of the the super app uh, model. Um, I think, I think where it works really well is where it's really targeted and focused. Um, I, in the US, I'm not sure we'll ever get to kind of where China is with the super apps. Um, but, you know, it seems like we, in general, kind of, uh, you know, if you look at like what Facebook or Meta are doing, like, you know, as they add more features, it seems like consumer interest gets lower. But when you've got apps that are doing like one thing really, really well, uh, people seem to like that a lot more. So I think it's, it's about balancing, um, you know, having, having a wide range of products, creating profit, um, but not losing sight of like the one thing that you were doing for your one specific customer base. Charlie, I'm going to give the last word to you. You, you talked about Revolut, and Revolut, of course, is, has a little bit of a super app strategy in Europe. Um, do customers want super apps, do you think? There was, a, there was a really nice analogy I heard the other day where customers have become so used to their individual, as Billy touched on there, their individual preference. For, you know, they like to message on WhatsApp. They like to um, do their, their banking on, on Monzo, um, for instance. And there was this nice analogy that making a super app would be like being in a shopping mall with none of your favorite shops in it, um, <laughs> which I thought was was quite nicely put. And I think there is probably perhaps too much of a cultural barrier for a super app ever to really develop in somewhere like the US and the UK when there has been this massive plethora of choice over the last 15 years and these individual areas have sprung up and grown organically. I don't think that it's ever going to be a viable business model in the same way it is in um, China, for instance. I think we might see, as Billy mentioned as well, the kind of within there might be a financial services super app um, where people can kind of see some coherence between stock trading and their banking and some buying an insurance product, for instance. So there may be a form of it. I don't think in the same sprawling way we'll we see in China. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, let's move on to our next story, our um, which is that Nirvana Money has closed its doors just 22 days after launch. This was reported in the FinTech Times. So less than a month after the launch of Nirvana Money, the FinTech startup has announced its closure. Nirvana Money officially launched at Money 2020 USA on the 24th of October. Just 22 days later, the company announced its closure via a short notice displayed on its website homepage. The fintech was set up to deliver an accessible credit card product that aimed to simplify money for middle-income earners in the US. 
the company shared its vision to combine the best features of credit cards, bank accounts, and gamified rewards programs into a single card. The waitlist to access the company's new card was also opened on the day of launch. The closure notice was posted on the homepage under the heading, The Nirvana Money Service is Being Discontinued. The brief notice read, Thank you for participating in the beta program of Nirvana Money. All accounts will be closed on December the 1st, 2022. Amy, what happened? Why did things wrap up so quickly? I'm guessing no one ever joined the waitlist or the waitlist never got to be very long. I, I don't know. I can't see from this that it's offering anything particularly different. Have these things been done before? Um, best features of credit cards, bank accounts, gamified rewards. A, a, a lot of people are focusing there. So maybe it just wasn't differentiated enough. Billy, what do you think? Understand what this idea of, of combining a credit card, a bank account, and a gamified rewards program. I think there's a lot of things like that on the market right now. Um, most credit cards have gamified rewards programs already. Um, and it's pretty common that, you know, your bank account will give you a credit card as well. So I'm not sure if it just wasn't differentiated enough. Um, perhaps they'd already put the deposit down on the Money 2020 booth and thought, well, I'm still going to do the launch, even if, uh, even if we're shutting up shop, have a nice party or something. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, there are so many fintechs out there. You really, really have to differentiate. Um, and it has to be something really unique in order for it to stand out now, because, you know, why wouldn't you use the Chime credit builder or the Capital One credit builder and bank account? Um, I'm just not sure sure why anyone would would use this which is I feel a bit mean saying that but that is how I feel. <laughs> Charlie in digital we often talk about fail fast as a sort of product development technique you know f- figure out what's wrong and fix it um, but is this a record for a fast failure for a fintech? Um, have, <laughs> have you seen someone open and close that quickly? Liz Truss I think is the only uh, the only thing <laughs> <laughs> Even she, theme. even she lasted forty-five days, yeah, she right? Did, yeah, they should bring her in as to head off yeah. operations in its next iteration. Um, I can't think of any. No, unfortunately, um, the, this does seem to be a record. And I think just you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I'm hugely close to the story, but it, it does again just feel like it, it's kind of the same product we've seen a lot. I don't think there's a huge amount of of differentiation there. Um, and it's a, a rather embarrassing outing, I would say. But maybe they did get a nice party out of it on Money 2020. So we're beating them up a bit. Is it possible that actually a business plan that did make sense when faced with the economic headwinds they ran into suddenly stopped making so, sen- so much sense? I mean, Billy, you must know, you know how long it takes to sort of get an idea off the ground and you know, get ready to launch and so on. Could it just be that the economic environment just changed against them and actually launching a credit card into a cost of living crisis suddenly didn't add up? I guess, but um, maybe I'm just biased here because we've we've sort of ideated and launched Grow over the course of about six months um, based on the, ch- the changing market. So I, it kind of it, like, <laughs> we, uh, I, it kind of seems like they just gave so up, no. <laughs> uh, you know, like early stage startups are a game of tenacity and grit. Um, the ones that succeed are the ones that keep going, even when things fail, they pivot, they keep going, they f- and they figure out what it is that um, people are going to, to engage with. And 
you know, I, I, I don't know much about the nine financial technology companies that he founded previously, but maybe this is just how he got up to the number nine. Like maybe it's just throwing things at the wall one month later being like, ah, no, that doesn't work. That there's probably a good strategy in there somewhere. Um, as long as you're being good with investors money and making sure you're, you're paying back that money. But, um, yeah, it just, it just seemed a little, uh, a little disappointing. I, you know, I would, I would have wanted to see at least an attempt to, to adjust to the market. Is there a question here as well about customer understanding? Did they really know who they were? They were launching this for it's saying aimed to simplify money for middle income earners in the US. I mean, that's pretty broad. Did they know the jobs to be done of this market? Did they do their their proper research? So I think maybe they're going back to the drawing board, doing some more research, doing it again. Um, we've seen that happen before, so would be interesting to see if it re- Nirvana money resurfaces in in a couple of months' time, or maybe years. Charlie, there was a lot of venture capital money available, um, sort of a couple of years ago, going to a lot of startups. Do you think we're going to see more fintechs closing down as some of the maybe weaker, less well thought through business models? Just the investors just say, okay, we're just not not supporting this any longer. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I think. One of the conversations when everything started to slide earlier this year that came up again and again was I speak to VCs and they'd say, we're going back to basics, you know, we're going back to our fundamentals. And you did kind of think, well, shouldn't you have been doing that all along? But there was that maybe that slight sense of FOMO in the market. People felt like they were missing out on rands. Um, I do think that's probably gone. And as we've, we've kind of touched on a few times today, there's that focus on, on profitability, proving that track to profitability. Um, the cheap money isn't there anymore. Um, and I, I think that both on the VC side and the um, fintech side, you will probably see more failures. I think the VC side is quite an interesting one where there were funds who perhaps assumed they would be able to raise in a, you know, a few months down the line and they've used 18 months worth of cash in, in a much shorter amount of time. So I think there'll be some interesting things, interesting probably a, a slightly morbid way of putting it, I think, but there'll be trends to watch probably on on both sides of the market there. So some things to discuss in our next few podcasts. Okay. Um, Well, we recently recorded a podcast looking at how fintech can continue to innovate during a recession, uh, where we spoke to guests from Oak North and Versapay, and you can find that wherever you got this podcast. Okay. So now for the section of the show that we call Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of a few more stories um, from the news this week, um, where we just uh, summarise the story. Amy, do you want to kick things off? Sure. So uh, first story, Seller launches pilot of biometric credit card in Italy. And this is from Fintech Futures. Italy's Seller has launched the trial of a biometric recognition credit card that allows people to make payments using their fingerprint. The biometric card is being issued by Seller on the Visa scheme, developed in partnership with identity technology solutions provider Idemia. As part of the project, each chosen customer will receive a kit with a device on which the customer's fingerprint can be enrolled, without the need for visiting the bank branch. Seller says that once the fingerprint is acquired, the card is ready for use and requires no batteries to operate. Um, I think it would undermine the innovative nature of this if it required batteries to operate. <laughs> um, but it is it is interesting, I suppose, from my point of view, it's the question is why would people use this over Apple Pay? 
but then maybe that's uh, I, I don't know a lot about the Italian market, so maybe that's that's linked there. But ultimately, it's a two-factor authentication. It enables people to pay in a contactless way without having to adhere to the contactless limit because they're able to use their fingerprint and the card at the same time. So, Billy, I don't know if you have a comment on this because um, you mentioned that you'd you'd uh, had contact with seller before. Uh, yeah, not with Seller, with um, Idemia. Um, ah, sorry. Yeah, no, I, we, we were, we, uh, I had a conversation uh, probably about a year ago or so now um, about this, about this technology. I think it's super cool. I think there are some really interesting um, uh, uses of, of, of using kind of like a fingerprint scanner. Um, we've, we've kind of floated around the idea of a assertion-based identity um, and ways that we might be able to abstract uh extraneous information so that uh, you're, you're kind of just checking against the thing that you want and using a fingerprint instead of a photo ID as a way of verifying that that person is that person. Um, I guess if your iPhone's out of battery, then you have a way of doing Apple Pay without Apple Pay. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're dead on that um, the Apple's innovation. I know that Apple are bringing photo IDs and state IDs um, to Apple Wallet. And so I think once we've once we've reached that point, um, it's kind of the beginning of the end for for any other kind of of product. Okay, well, other phones are available, right? Our next story is that ClearBank's CEO is plotting a European launch and M&A as profitability is reached. This was reported in Altfi. So ClearBank, which is an enabler of secure accounts, real-time clearing, and embedded banking for financial institutions, has announced that it has reached profitability. The UK bank, launched in 2015, became profitable in October 2022 and is one of the few digital banks to reach profitability. The bank works with over 200 financial institutions, including Coinbase, eToro, Raisin and Tide. It puts the growth down to growing transaction volumes, new customers, interest income, and the ramp-up of the bank's new FX and multi-currency proposition. ClearBank is planning expansion into Europe and the US, beginning with the launch of ClearBank Europe in the Netherlands next year. To find out more, we reached out to the CEO, Charles McManus. We're excited to tell you that ClearBank is now profitable. We are one of the few new banks to have reached this achievement with only 5% of new banks globally accomplishing this milestone. Our profitability means that we'll double down on making our work even more powerful for our clients and partners at a time when they need it most. Thank you to our people, clients, partners and investors who've been a part of our incredible journey so far. Together, our future is bright. So I think ClearBank does have a bright future. Um, ClearBank has got a very different business model to many other new banks, really working in the background to support fintechs and other firms. And really, they were one of the first to see some of the opportunities in embedded financial services. And we think embedded financial services are going to see substantial growth over the next few years. So um, I'll probably prove to be completely wrong, but I'm expecting to see great things coming from ClearBank over the next few years. Okay, let's move into uh, the final section of the week. This week, we're once again diving into our FinTech Insider mailbag. We've been asking our social media followers to send in quickfire questions for the panel to at FinTech Insiders, and we answer a few in the final show of each month. So our first question from Laura, I think I'm going to throw this one to you, Billy, is... Should banks put a blanket ban on crypto payments like Starling and others have announced in recent weeks? 
Are customers not allowed to make up their own minds? Why not do this with other risky sectors like gambling? Um, I think this question is maybe a bit of a red herring. Um, we do block gambling and other risky sectors um, on our platform. And maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I haven't actually seen the announcement from Starling, but I think they're blocking crypto because it's a f- because of fraud, right? Not because of customer safeguarding. Um, you know, we would we would have we I assume we have a very similar policy, um, though I haven't double checked this week. But uh, you know, we're we're looking for 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 indicators of fraud, not necessarily uh, bad spending habits. Because if they did, then uh, they would have shut down my account long ago. <laughs> Yeah, I think it I think I think it is fraud that's driving it for for Starling and some of the others. Okay, the second question, thank you. Um the second question from the mailbag and I'm going to throw this on to you Amy is what will fintech be like in 2070? Thanks so much for throwing that one to me. Um <laughs> well, I don't know. I think would standalone f- financial products even exist? Maybe all finance will be embedded um or could we expect fintechs to have actually cracked the problem around giving you decent spending insights and get, getting a decent view of, of your um, spending across multiple bank accounts? Who knows what we might see? Um, another thought I had was maybe that um, perhaps we'll get to a place where some of those areas of financial services that just haven't seen the same sort of fintech focus, like wealth management or insurance, um, might have finally caught up with retail banking <laughs> by 2070. <laughs> Well, fantastic. Or when you say embedded, do you mean embedded into other products or embedded into our bodies? (laughs) Yeah, maybe both. Who knows? (laughs) All right. Um, Finally, Fintech Business Weekly's Jason Mikula commented on last week's Fintech Insider News, which was titled, "Would, Would You Bank With Twitter? Saying... Assuming this is a pretty short episode, the answer is just no, right? Um... Our LinkedIn followers agreed, 83% said they would not bank with Elon, compared with just 17% who said they would. Um, Charlie, I'm going to throw this to you first. Uh, you're a journalist. What's your view on banking with Twitter? I think it's, it comes, it's coming back to the point we were talking about earlier, but it's, it's again, in the same discussion that we are having around super apps, um, do people see Twitter as a platform they want to be banking with? Do regulators see Twitter as a trustworthy platform that they would like to give a banking license to, I would suggest probably not. And I think that given the troubles it's already had with regulators in all the various jurisdictions it, you know, operates in just over kind of privacy and safeguarding, I think adding banking into the mix probably doesn't look like a, a smooth um, transition at the moment. So I would say I probably will refrain from banking with Twitter for the foreseeable. I'll use it just for um, trying to share my own pieces and, and starting arguments with people. Amy and Billy, are, are either of you in the seventeen percent? Do you think our uh, Do you think well, our LinkedIn followers are wrong? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you ask people, would you bank with Apple? People would probably like it would be flipped round, and most of those people probably would say yes. So the fact that people are so against banking with Twitter, when many people would ha- happily and are happy happy um, with the Apple credit card to have a financial product with Apple, so. You could. It ultimately just comes down to trust in the brand, and clearly, people don't trust Twitter or Elon. Billy. Yeah, I mean, Apple's a well-run company, right? Why <laughs> people put their trust in it? Um, so, yeah, I think that probably indicates what I would stand on a on a Twitter financial product. Yes, Twitter hasn't exactly been a standout example of um, how to motivate your employees over the past uh, past few weeks. 
All right. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much um, to our guest today. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? And we've got a nice ABC here. So, Amy. Uh, LinkedIn for me, Amy Gavin. Billy. Try not to be on social media, so you can find me at joindaylight.com. And Charlie. Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn is probably the best place to get me. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, please do uh, join in on social media. Email us at podcast at 11fs.com. Send us your nasty questions for our mailbag um, and our links in the show description. Thank you all so much and goodbye. Goodbye.